Welcome to the Football by Football Podcast. Welcome back to the FBF Podcast. This is in the game. I'm very excited to be back. It's been a been a hell of a nice break, I know, for all of us since the Super Bowl last that we last, you know, we're on the radio together. Uh, Brady Quinn and I doing this our, our Fox thing and then having our podcast. It's just we've had a nice little break here, but I think we're all kind of chomping at the bit to get back at it. Today's going to be a little bit of a unique segment. We're going to have Brady Quinn on with us here for the first half to co-host and the second half of the show. Brady Pinga is going to jump on. And we'll uh, get at both of these guys and sort of the reactions to their first wave of free agency. Brady Quinn, what's going on, buddy? How's your time off been? My time off has been amazing, Matt. I can't lie. I don't think I went ice fishing like you did. Um, I enjoyed more <laughs> of the warmer weather down here in South Florida. <laughs> I'm envious. So, so you don't have to drill holes in the water there in Florida. Is that, is that how that works? No, no, you don't at all. In fact, <laughs> In some parts, Matt, you just stick the uh, line in, in the water, and you're going to catch something. <laughs> Maybe even an arm, like the uh, lupin or whatever the hell they call that. But uh, well, all righty. Well, it's it a spring break down here this time of year. So if you throw it in, you might end up catching, catching a spring breaker. <laughs> you're catching something. All right. Well, hey, let's dive right into this. Uh, you know, obviously, here is a player only kind of show. We, we love to get into some of the stuff that you're not going to generally hear in other places, other podcasts, other radio shows, those kinds of deals. Uh, one of the things that I like to, that I always reflect on each, each and every year as sort of free agency both opens and then closes at least this first hectic weekend where, you know, I, you, you go on a message board or the, the, the comment section of an article in relation to any free agent signing, there's half the team is in the league right now think their, their team is, is doomed next season because of one or two moves that have happened. The other half thinks that they're about to win it now because of one or two things that have happened. Uh, it, it's, it's really kind of the crazy season. Uh, I, I think this is really a moment for, for sort of context from a player standpoint where this is also a time where a lot of people's lives are changed, quite frankly. I've been through it once myself where you, you, know, you grind away for six years uh, making, for me, minimum contracts, getting signing bonuses, but pretty modest. And I got my one deal, which, again, as a special teams linebacker, is not going to blow eyeballs away in a newspaper headline. But it was the one deal that sort of gave myself some future security for my family. Uh, and that was a huge moment. It probably would have been more of a, you know, a, a, a sideline kind of a news issue for that particular team. But just want to sort of highlight that there's a lot of that going around here. Guys that have waited, 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 got their one contract. They're excited. Life-changing event for them. And a lot of these guys end up being big uh, big contributors to teams. So I wanted to throw it to you, Brady, and, and sort of talk a little bit about your own personal experience in, in free agency or that moment where you were without a team and then you found a team. And it may have not been the biggest sort of headline at the time, but it was – it was a cool sort of change, of course, in your life. Yeah, you know, it was interesting for me because coming out of my rookie contract, you know, I got traded within that contract. And when I got traded to Denver, we had a coaching change. So for me, I, I all of a sudden ended up basically becoming a free agent, had the opportunity to sign back in Denver. Um, but, you know, I'd been through so much between the coaching changes, um, you know, them, them kind of going with Tim Tebow at times, where as I was told I was going to be the number two, uh, behind Kyle Orton and all that for two years in a row, and it didn't happen. So I kind of felt jaded. I kind of wanted to reestablish myself, and it was a it was an interesting point in time for me. And just like we're seeing right now in free agency, 
You know, the Kansas City Chiefs were a team that made a lot of moves. They brought in, a, a, you know, a good amount of guys to seem to bolster their roster and re-sign some guys to, to really make it look like we could compete in the AFC West. And that was something that, you know, was attractive to me. Uh, it was the opportunity to go to a team that, you know, was in the division where I could compete, you know, back against Denver, show them what they were missing out on uh, and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it was also different in the sense that, you know, for, for me in, in, in that part of my career versus at the end, you know, you were getting a call right away. As soon as free agency hit, you were getting a call, you're on a plane, you're visiting, you know, different teams and, and sitting down, talking with coaching staff, learning their system. Um, and, and, you know, things didn't work out that year. You know, I ended up signing a one-year deal, trying to capitalize off of an opportunity to play that one-year deal. We had an awful season, uh, which kind of goes to show you people should be hesitant as much as they want to get excited about all the different signings and things that are happening at this time of year, that doesn't right. mean it's all going to come together or it's all going to work out. Uh, and then, so then you go later on in my career, you're seven, eight, you know, it, it was a lot longer to wait for that call. You know, and one was, was because of a health issue, but at the same time, it was almost like you were, you were sitting there hoping just someone would give you a chance as opposed to really being the guy that got to choose where you wanted to go to reestablish yourself in your career. So a little bit of a juxtaposition compared to maybe what you experienced with free agency, uh, because for quarterbacks, it's tough, man. I think it's a very uh, unique scenario for many quarterbacks, whether you're talking about a guy like Brock Osweiler, who is looking to cash in and try to be the franchise quarterback, or, you know, a guy like Chase Daniels, who hasn't played very much at all. I mean, the guy's thrown 77 pass attempts in his right. career started in New Orleans, went to Kansas City, now he's in Philadelphia, and he's just hoping that someone will eventually give him the shot to see if he could be the guy, because uh, I'm sure he mind, in his mind he thinks he can. But it's a little bit different for a quarterback. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I imagine it, it, you and your agent are looking across the landscape and realizing, you know, you can look at contracts that are already there and say, okay, well, that place isn't even a possibility. Love the place, love the coach, love the staff, but there's no way that's going to work, both based on the starter and the backups deal or the absence yeah. of the starter. And we, we definitely did that, you know, obviously, on a lower level with the with the linebacker thing. So you go through and say, oh, who are their Sam linebackers? Who are their, their top paid free agent or the top paid special teams guy in the group? Do they have one that they're willing to pay sort of a veteran premium to? And you really sort of search the list and say, well, okay, wow. And it ain't 32 teams. It's four, <laughs> you know, and, and the situation of four, maybe two have mutual interest. And then you don't like the deal with one and like the other. And all of a sudden 32 became one. And that's, I, I was, yeah. I was in, a, in an oddball situation where, I had uh, originally uh, an offer to come down with the Jets. Uh, this is 2006, so this is actually when the CBA got extended. Uh, so there was a little sort of front-end negotiation that was going on there before the, the bigger one that happened later down the road. And I actually started free agency. I uh, took my free agent trip, was down in New York, and every, free the, the, the opening belt the free agency was pushed back a couple of days while they were re sort of renegotiating sort of those terms or whatever was going on at the time. So I thought I was about ready to sign the next morning. We all just sort of put on pause or button for a little while. So it was a really weird situation. I was a first wave guy, but a first wave at a modest dollar. Uh, you know, it's a brand new organization. Mangini was trying to bring in guys that knew the Patriot system that could teach it there. It was Kimo Van Ohoff and myself uh, and uh, Tim Dwight at the time, I think, were the three that signed there. But we were just trying to wait for when we were allowed to sign, basically. And But I was definitely in that situation where I went down with that as my first place. 
had had uh, visit offers for the Texans and Niners and, and never got out of the building. And I, I think it is something that in my head I always wonder, not, not begrudging my time in New York. I had a good time there. It was, it was a positive experience. Obviously, the contract was nice for my family. But it is one of those things where I look at young guys now who, who take visits and never make it to the second or third visit. I think as a, a player of my position, you know, I've been a backup, I've been a top special teams guy, but you don't, you're always a little nervous about what kind of leverage do I have? You know, there's this new place that is going to have me play more linebacker, but you always have that undrafted free agent thing in the back of my head. And, you know, if I don't sign today, I mean, the deal will be gone tomorrow kind of feel. So you feel pressure that, you know, <laughs> kind of stays with you. Like you're almost scared if I go take that other visit and they're sort of intimating that if you don't take it now, you know, it might not be there tomorrow. You know, you just, you never, you're not used to having leverage and, and I never took those two visits. So you always kind of wonder what would have happened had I, but uh, can't look back. Can't, uh, can't uh, do that. That's common though, Matt. I mean, I sat, I sat in a meeting room where I was, I'm not going to say which GM, what team, but you know, we were sitting there talking about the contract situation and all that. And, you know, that's more for my agent to do, not for me. Right. He kind right, of right. started to discuss this with me, which it puts players in awkward scenarios. And, and you got to think about this too. Players are not accustomed to, you know, unless they're interested in this kind of thing or, or they are heavily involved in, in their negotiations, you know, they're not, they didn't spend their entire career building up to the point to negotiate with GMs. You know, that's, that's more on the GM side and his ability to do that. So when they start right. talking contracts and money and all of a sudden they're not being there for you, uh, it, it gets tough as a player to sit in that room and be able to kind of, you know, just kind of keep a tight lip and not say anything and allow your right. agents to do right. the behind the scenes. And, and a situation you were talking about, they had kind of said to me, well, we've, you know, got another quarterback that we're looking to bring in if you don't want to make this decision. And I kind of just told them, man, I, I'm going to take all the time I need. And if you can't respect that, then maybe I'm not the guy for you in the first place. But there, there are some tough conversations that go on behind the scenes that people don't realize. Uh, right. It doesn't matter what position. You're cool. uh, I, I, I do want to pose this question to you, though, Matt. I think it's interesting. One, one player in particular who was really able to cash in uh, was Brock Osweiler, leaving the Denver yeah. Broncos and going to the Houston Texans. But now we've seen kind of a standstill for a lot of the other free agent quarterbacks, you know, Ryan Fitzpatrick had the best season of his career last year at the Jets. In fact, the best single season for a quarterback, statistically speaking, for the Jets. And he's at a standstill. They can't seem to kind of close the gap of what the Jets think he's worth and what he thinks yeah. he's worth. RG3 is another quarterback who's taken a visit. He actually went to the Jets as well, but he hasn't figured out anything else. Colin Kaepernick, they're floating around, possibly teams trading for him. Uh, and, and I think people are trying to figure out what his worth is. Obviously, he signed the contract, but in the same you know sense, there's a lot of teams that may want to trade for him, and then all of a sudden maybe renegotiate, or maybe they feel like it's a it's a team friendly enough deal. Either way, I guess I'm curious. Do you feel as if Brock Osweiler hurt the rest of the quarterback market in the sense of the, you know he, he got a deal that overvalued him, or do you feel like these other scenarios are just kind of separate and independent? and don't really have anything else to do with the Osweiler sign in, in particular, being that maybe he's only the guy that fits that franchise quarterback uh, title. Well, I, I love that you went this way, and I think this is really actually some sort of behind-the-red-curtain stuff that we can provide. My, my view is that absolutely affected it. I've actually been in this sort of informal conversation with uh, GM and coach and talking about 
uh, you know, if you're there at home and you have an Excel spreadsheet, something that you can just pop up on your computer, I have had this sat in front of me with the other guys that a general manager considers me a comp with, right? So he'll put down all the current contracts and all the perspectives. So at a time when we're talking free agency, they'll go back and, you know, say this is quarterback that you're bringing up with Brock, but with for me at, at a special teams linebacker deal, they'll bring up the four top guys that they consider sort of across the, across the league and say, here's what they make on an APY. This is their average per year. Uh, this is the production they had. This is another big, big factor is games played. And that's important with Brock Osweiler, obviously, because, you know, a guy that produced uh, looks like a good player but only plays nine games is a little concerned going into free agency if it was an injury-related or if, you know, in the Osweiler example, just inexperience. So they, they, they literally, I don't know if every organization does this, but the two that I dealt with will do this, will literally put in front of you, here's what those four guys make. Uh, here's where we see you slotting into that. And uh, when a guy that's outside that four or say one of those four is a prospective free agent as well, goes out and does a deal buster, like say doubles what those numbers are, you're sitting there looking into the spreadsheet, it makes everybody else go, whoa, you know, and it pauses things and it makes all the other agents run back and say, wow, we got to restructure our ask. And it makes the player say, well, if he's getting that, well, then, you know, I don't have to necessarily match it, but I need to be in that neighborhood. So it is interesting with Ryan Fitzpatrick. If, if he had a number in his head in you know January, right, when his season ended, I think the number in his head had to change when Brock's number went out there. I just think that's natural. And uh, I think you make a good example with Brock Osweiler. Um, actually, Greg Bedard, my friend from uh, used to be a, a Globe guy, now works for SI, uh, had tweeted out something interesting yesterday about how uh, Aaron Rodgers' uh, contract, at least on an APY, again, average per year, I don't think it's the perfect metric, but it's kind of it, it's a it's a simple sort of top line kind of thing. The deal that Aaron Rodgers did uh, made him the fourth highest paid quarterback after sitting for all those years behind Favre, when he had actually played less games, and those few numbers that he had would wouldn't have, would have been comparable, I guess, to what Brock did in his short window. So with his short timeline, he was given a number, at least on an average per year, which isn't guarantees, which isn't the actual contract, but it's a, it's a top line thing. Was actually more than Brock. So when things like that happen, all the other guys that are potential free agents or guys that are in the midst of deals that are starting to restructure them, go back to your agent and say, wow, okay, well, that's the new standard. We can write up to that. So I think it does sort of cause a market ripple, no question. You mentioned a couple of good examples. Ryan Fitzpatrick is still trying to figure out, well, what is it I'm worth? Uh, you know, RG3, well, wait a minute, what am I worth? And I, I think the market, beyond just trying to figure out what RG3 is worth and what Colin Kaepernick are worth, uh, don't know what they're getting, and and fit really matters. You don't want to pay a guy to a number you love and then have him be in the wrong system. So, I think it's a, I think it's a really cool point, and I, I should mention this as well. I mean, on the quarterback, that's a great and easy example. I think with Brock Osweiler, where it sort of shocked the market. I think the other one here now, uh, and this is this is current news here in New England for for the market I live and work in. Uh, the Olivia Olivia, oh, I always oh, tell help me with a name Vernon, <laughs> the, the defensive end from the Dolphins. Olivier, there you go. Okay, so Vernon, uh, who I've you know watched for his four, first four years, the Dolphins scouted the guy, watched most of every game, every rep he's taken. Uh, he just did another one of those market ripple contracts as well. He's now getting seventeen million dollars a year, and he, uh, if you look at Chandler Jones, who was just traded from the Patriots to the Cardinals, Chandler Jones has been much more productive in his four years than Vernon has, and I think it made the Patriots go, wow. What we thought Chandler Jones's price in free agency in 2017 was, was going to be just went up 40, 50%. You know, he's a 17 
if Vernon's a $17 million a year guy, does that mean Chandler's 18, 19, 20? What, what is it going to be? And all of a sudden you get freaked out and say, wow, well, we know we're never going to match that. Let's try and get value today. So I think these things definitely go on uh, really all the time. So I'm going to send this back to you. And I, I sort of had this, uh, this thought. Uh, and again, I, again, this is a player friendly kind of show. And I wanted to look at names that jumped off to you that in free agency, you went, wow. Okay. I've been watching this guy the last couple of years. I think that's exceptional value. I think that's exceptional fit. That's one of my real favorite deals that I saw go through this sort of first wave. Is there a guy that, and maybe it's one we've already mentioned, but that sort of jumps off the board to you that says, hey, that was a great deal for really all sides involved? Um, I'm, I'm trying to kind of look at it, and I guess uh, speaking to your market up there and the trade they just did, now my, my only hesitation is, you know, the New England Patriots get, in exchange for Chandler Jones, Jonathan Cooper, and is, is it a second-round pick? Is that what uh, came along yeah. with, if I'm not mistaken? Yeah, yeah and, and I think and, it hits at so 60 with, or 61, something like that, yeah. Yeah, and, and so with that, you can kind of tie in, you know, Chris Long been signing for a one-year deal. And I spent half a season right. in St. Louis with Chris Long. And, I mean, look, from what he brings to the table as far as a work ethic, leadership, his, his overall ability – uh, I, I think they're getting tremendous value uh, doing a one-year deal with Chris Long and replace Chandler, Chandler Jones. Now, he might not be as productive as Chandler, but I'm talking about uh, not to take anything away from Rob Ninkovich. He's a heck of a player. But I think Chris Long has that much more ability. And I, I think he'll be a, a very solid player in their system. They, they get an offensive guard who, you know, maybe Dante Scarnecchia can get him to the ability that I think a lot of teams have seen him at. I mean, Jonathan Cooper was a guy who I'm pretty sure was a top 10 pick. Hasn't really. 12, I believe. Yeah, 12. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Somewhere in the first round and hasn't really panned out. But I think with some good coaching, it seems like the New England way always finds ways of making guys maximize their talent and ability. So I think this works for the New England Patriots in that sense, as far as what they get with Long, what they get with Cooper, and, and not having to worry about dealing out a ton of money to a guy like Chandler, Chandler Jones next year. And it worked for the Arizona Cardinals. You know, they wanted to get a guy and a pass rusher who they kind of brought in at the end of the season last year in, in uh, Dwight Freeney, who ended up being essentially a you know third down passing situation, pass rusher, right. really, uh, you know, had a ton of production when they needed him to and helped them, you know, kind of, you know, take off into the playoffs and continue uh, a lot of the defensive uh, dominance that they displayed under Todd Bowles and, and, and you know under uh, Jason Betcher as well, their defensive coordinator there now. So w- when you when you look at that, I thought it was like, it was a good trade all the way around for both sides really. Uh, and, and there's not too many others that stick out to me only because I feel like there were some guys who got these big money contracts, which is great for the player. But in the end, I don't know that it's ever going to work out. I don't know that Malik Jackson's ever going to see ninety million dollars considering that he, he really only got two guaranteed, and that's probably the only amount of money he's ever going to reach in that contract. Yeah, it's an interesting point that and whenever we talk about this first wave, I say it kind of, I think, with, you know, biting the side of my, my mouth a little bit. And I kind of sense that in you. It's, it's not to, to sort of talk about a deal that might not end up working out it's not saying that they're not a good player it's just that sometimes the numbers get so out of whack for what a player could possibly do 
that it's really hard to earn the contract. You look at it and say, wow, that's yeah. great money. How much does the guy get in year two through through like three years of that five? Because, you know, he can play out of his ass. And it'll be very difficult when that fourth-year decision comes to pay him 30% more, the backloaded part, to, to actually be able to live up to it. We see this all the time where a guy signs a great deal, plays well for three of the five or three of the four, and then that really tough decision has to come, and they say, man, you know, we've had some really great times with this guy at an $8 million cap figure for the last three years, but now it's 14. Still love the guy, but, you know, it'll take a cap hit of, you know, $3 million of dead money. I'm, I'm using phony money, phony dollars here, but, you know, let's take that dead cap hit and move on from having to pay him a six, six more than we have in the past. And I, this, you see this all the time, so you hate to see a deal – that looks so over the moon that it's going to be tough for even if the guy plays well, like he did in in the manner to get the job, that it's hard to reach it. And I actually look at Vernon's deal and I look at it that way. I've watched him a lot and I think he's a, he's a very good player, uh, but you know, opposite Cameron Wake, you always get to see both. Cameron Wake is obviously an older player. Now I get that. He's obviously now injured coming off an Achilles, but Cameron Wake is just a notch above, you know, he just is. And, and probably no matter how well Vernon plays, he'll probably always be a little bit above. That doesn't mean one, they're not both very good players, but it's going to be very difficult for a guy who in his best seasons, having seven and eight sack seasons to be worth $17 million a year. Even if you're getting pass breakups and, or, you know, the disruption plays and knockdowns and all the stuff that Vernon did in that last half of last season, he played really, really well. But, you know, when you put a $17 million tag on one guy you almost have to go get 15 sacks or they're going to say you failed you know i mean at what point do they are they satisfied with that number in year three or four if you have a real nice solid disruptive year at 12 sacks it's just that's that's the scary yeah. part i think of free agency yeah and i think i'm a little bit upset too with the process and it's not as a player at all right i want every player to get as much money as, as possible as they can sure. the issue is this when we see for example, Olivier Verdon's contract reported. You had a number that was thrown out. One they throw out at someone the eighty million, kind of similar to Malik Jackson. We see this ninety million dollar, you know, uh, number that gets thrown out. And in order for him to do that, he's got to win probably four Super Bowls, be the MVP of all four, <laughs> right, 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 and come back. I mean, there's all these ridiculous right. incentives. But but in the case of Vernon with his contract, the, one of the numbers that I always look for is the guaranteed money. The first number sure. I saw was $54 million guaranteed. And I thought to myself, right. that's a really high number for a guy like you just mentioned who's kind of had a seven, eight-sack years as being his best years. Granted, he still has a lot of upside, but still, I mean, Sue got around 60. Well, let's look at it a little bit closer. You know what it actually ended up being, that was $40 million fully guaranteed. And that's what bothers me is the, the agents are trying to make it more about themselves as opposed to the player. And, look, I guess it's good marketing, and that's how they go about trying to attract other players. Look how much money I got this guy. I just sure. hope that other players aren't fooled by this tactic, and hopefully the fans at home aren't either, so that they understand truly what, you know, how much these guys are getting. Not saying it's a small amount, but really in the end, he's getting $40 million fully guaranteed. In order to reach the other guarantees in his contract, he has to be on the roster. There's so many other things he's got to fight, and that's what gets lost in this whole process is, you know, there's not a whole lot of transparency with a lot of the contracts that are being signed right now for these free agents. And I think fans have this idea that football players are making all this money. And, yes, compared sure. to the general population, that is true. But also keep this in mind. The contracts aren't fully guaranteed. Injuries do happen. And on top of that, 
there's a lot of fluff in some of the contracts where, especially when it's a long-term deal, like you had mentioned, they're either coming back to release a guy, trade a guy, or renegotiate his contract because they don't feel like he's worth what's put in the back end of that contract, and he's probably not going to hit some of these astronomical incentives that they throw in. Yeah, it's it's too bad that's the case. And I actually have the contract here open from Spotrack. You know, guys out there, go to Spotrack.com. They're, they're a real good resource if you you like to get into the A-head stuff of actually checking out the nuts and bolts of these contracts. That's S-P-O-T-R-A-C.com, Spotrack.com. Uh, Vernon's contract is, is very much like that. He's going to play for a cap hit of 13 and 16 in the next two years, where, which for top pass rushers is actually not astronomical. It's not Sue where you're getting up to 20 million. It's not even Mario Williams' old deals where you're inching up there. But then it then it jumps. You know, in the last two years of his deal, it's 19-5 and 19-5, basically a quarterback contract for a defensive end who's been good. And so, you know, like you are saying, it's almost unlivable. Like what would you have to do? to be able to convince them to actually pay you that. And, and to even mention the, the, you know, this, this little clause, this little asterisk at the bottom is something, as you mentioned, you're not going to find this in the headline, but in $12 million of his 2018 salary becomes guaranteed on the third league day of 2018. In other words, 2016 and 17, Vernon is absolutely going to be a New York giant. There's no way of knowing if he'll be there on 2018 because they have a $12 million decision to make in March of that year, which means part of it could be phony. So, you, you know, you, you feel for the player. If What if he, you know, blows a knee out in one of these two years? It, it definitely then yeah. becomes a, a two-year deal. So that's why, again, when we I have these conversations with, with friends from former baseball players, former hockey players that – at Nesson where I work up here in New England. And it's just their numbers are real because a contract is a contract. We just have kind of these phony things where you almost have to be a CPA and learn how to read the back end of these things to figure out what's really happening. So one of the the numbers I always kind of laugh at when we see somebody throw out the X billion dollars or X hundred million dollars have been spent thus far in free agency. Like, wow, wow. <laughs> if they go, if those deals go to completion, they never do. So, yes, someone yeah. wrote that amount of, on paper and two sides signed their names next to them. And part of it will be paid, but part of it won't. We just know that there's a long history there with these kind of contracts. So uh, I'm going to move yeah. on here to sort of what I thought was my was my sort of hit. And you uh, you touched on this a little bit. Uh, during the season where you really got into sort of some of the growth that, that Russell Wilson had during the year. I think he was a little off as a passer early. They were having protection issues. I argued at the time that he was part of it. Uh, but he really, I think, played exceptionally well down the stretch, had a rough playoff game. But other than that, I think he developed as a passer in the second half of the season. One of the signings that I really, really liked that was somewhat quiet and I think a super valued deal was Jermaine Curse, one of his wide receivers. Now, Curse is not the guy that got as much of the headlines. Uh, he's a bigger guy. His deal is not astronomical. So, I mean, if you're going to go down and list the top 20, 30, whatever, free agency deals, Curse probably isn't in your, your free agency tracker. But what I liked about his, and the deal was reportedly three for 13.5. So you're getting a guy at about four and a half-ish per, per clip. Uh, a little bit south of what uh, Julian Edelman got. And, and I don't know if people, you know, the, the New England listeners will certainly remember this, but maybe their national audience, might, not as much. But uh, Julian Edelman went out and had sort of a mild market himself uh, when he had hit his free agency deal. I think he visited the Niners. I want to say he visited the Giants too. I could be wrong on those two teams. But 
went out and and the offers were pretty modest. They were trying to slot him as a as a slot wide receiver and use the dollars to sort of drive him there. And he doesn't play slot wide receiver. I think he's a short white guy. I mean, but beyond that, he plays X, he plays Y, he plays all over the formation, spends as much time outside the slot as in. I looked at Jermaine Curse as kind of one of those guys as well that his own team might value him more than the market does. But because of his size, because of his go-get-it ability, because he came in the league, I'm, I'm, I'm going off the cuff here, but I believe he was about a third or fourth rounder. So not a first rounder that's super driving the conversation. Not a guy that's getting 100 catches either. A guy that's in that sort of more, more modest range of 40, 50, 60. And again, I don't have his stats in front of me, but a guy that's very valuable to his team, but that the Seahawks kind of set for a first few days in free agency and let him go out and find out what's out there. And just based on the numbers he came back for, he wasn't a guy that was going to go get the money that Marvin Jones did out of Cincinnati. He wasn't a guy that on the open market was going to go get those great numbers because I think a lot like Julian Edelman, they look at him and say, okay, well, it's the production that he had a function of the offense he was in. And he's better suited to stay there, and it will not translate necessarily to us. I think Curse, I loved it. And every time you watch him, he's not a guy who's going to go catch eight or nine balls a game. But he'll do, you know, when things break down, and they often do with Russell and just the way that offense runs, he's a really good improv guy. He's a really good go-get-it guy. He's good for several big plays. He, he's a bigger body. I just think he fits perfectly for what they do. He also blocks really well on the on the exterior. So I'm looking at sort of value deals that you'll come back, and he'll produce for the next two or three years, or maybe two years into that three-year deal, and we'll go back and look and say, he might even, you know, now that he's playing for $4 million a year, he's playing at a great value. People are doing that with Julian Edelman right now. People are looking at Jules and saying, wow, that might be one of the most value-laden contracts in the NFL. He's, he's going to guy who might catch 100 balls, and he's playing for $5 million a year. So, Curse was definitely one that flew off the screen to me and says, you know what, I get why the market didn't jump all over him, but I think Seattle did a great job by locking their own guy up. You know, it's interesting because you saying this brings up a few things that come to mind. You know, you look at these, uh, the moves that have been made. We talked about Osweiler earlier, and it's interesting, right? Like the Denver Broncos who drafted Brock Osweiler know him best. And right. they offered him around $16 million a year. So I would think that if I was another team out there, I, I would look at what the Broncos offered and said, they probably know him better than anyone else. Maybe we can yeah. offer him more money than that. It's a buyer beware type issue. I mean, he's only had seven starts. And, and on top of that, I mean, who who knows? Yeah, maybe he has a lot of upside, big arm, all that kind of stuff. But I kind of saw that already once with Ryan Mallett. Uh, but it just goes to show you that, you know, or even for the New York Jets with Ryan Fitzpatrick, you know, they, they yeah. feel like they know what they have in Ryan Fitzpatrick. The, the Seattle Seahawks feel like they know what they had in Jermaine Curse. So they were like, yeah, go test the free agent market. But we're the ones that are going to value you the most because we understand what you mean in our offense as a leader in our locker room and everything else. So I always think that's interesting, too, when you, when you look at free agency and how it works out. The other thing is there's no state income tax in the state of uh, Washington. Same thing with Oscar going to the Houston Texans. And not many people talk about that for whatever reason as far as what Oswald's contract is going to look like being in, in the state of Texas for eight home games versus being in Denver and what that sort of savings or what that additional money is going to look like. They usually just compare the two contract offers that they have. And, and, and really the last thing is, you know, if I was going to pick out, the more I think about it, a team that, you know, kind of went all out. And, and maybe they need to because I don't know if David Caldwell, the general manager at the Jacksonville Jaguars, feels the pressure or not. But you look at the Jaguars and the moves they've made, I mean, they are all in on this thing. I mean, when you, when you think about it, you, you pay Malik Jackson, right? He signs the biggest contract of anyone. 
coming out. Then all of a sudden you yep. add in Sean Gibson, safety out of Cleveland, Prince Amakimura at cornerback. They needed help there. They re-signed Mercedes Lewis to a couple of Julius Thomas. They get Chris Ivory on, on top, you know, to, to add to the backfield as well. A nice little yep. go-to punch um, with a kid out of Alabama. And you kind of look at it and say, I think on paper they made some of the best moves. And, and so they add Lee Jackson, and who knows if they'll be able to add anything else. But we also, let's not forget, Dante Fowler, who was their first-round pick last year, he got hurt at the beginning of, uh, I want to say, the offseason or training camp. He's going to be back yep. this year. So we'll actually get to see the effect of having another dynamic pass rusher that was kind of like Kevin White up in Chicago, didn't get to play at all his rookie year. So this is a team that, to me, I think is in a great position to make some moves, possibly win the AFC South. We obviously saw the strides that Blake Bortles made in the second year. So that, that's a team that I like what they've done, but it also may have been out of desperation where they might have, you know, David Caldwell might be saying to himself, I don't know that me and Gus Bradley are going to be around if we don't make the playoffs this year. Yeah, it's you understand those forces that sort of pull at teams. And, and the thing you get worried about, if I lived and worked in that particular market, and in full disclosure, it's not something I've had to deal with in New England because they're usually – uh, you know, it's not a Super Bowl team. They're at least a deep playoff team. So they're always drafted at the back. It would be interesting to hold in to get your old franchise, the, the Cleveland Browns would be in this conversation, teams like them in Jacksonville that perpetually draft at the front end of the uh, at the front end of uh, the draft and that also usually hit first wave big signs. So they're they're paying oftentimes their market setting. So you might be paying a slight premium, even if it's 5% or 10% or whatever over a comparable player. You've got rosters loaded with uh, first-round picks that might be at the fifth overall pick as opposed to other teams that have them at the 28th or whatever, right? So if your fifth doesn't play demonstrably better than their 28th, if they're about the same and they're paying much less for their 28th than you are for your fourth. So you've got a, a roster full of four through tens and they've got a roster full of 25 through 30s, and they all play at about the same level, but you have to pay those eight guys of yours a little bit more than they have to pay their, their eight guys. And then you toss into that cauldron uh, three, four, five signings at massive premiums in the first wave of free agency. From just the simple accounting standpoint of, of living in a cap world, your roster's going to be tougher to handle. And that's, that's all I look at when I look at Jacksonville. I, there's nothing that you can say negative about the guys they signed. I think Chris Ivory's a great sign. I think Jackson played as good as anyone, even, even Von Miller through the Super Bowl run. But all these guys are on elevated deals. And if they've got elevated deals and there's a lot of really low uh, first-round picks uh, that also dot that roster that are playing at different levels, the cracks get stressed, you know, you, can you have as good of a third starting linebacker? Are you a little weaker at one of the tackle or one of the guard positions? Or are you a little thin at wide receiver now? It always gets pulled from some area and it just makes it tough. So you make a good point that, hey, it might be just a win win now environment for Caldwell and, and Bradley because, you know, they, they want to make sure they're here a year from now. So the influx of talent should hopefully help make it happen. But if it doesn't, I think somebody has a pretty serious accounting problem two, maybe three years from now that, that can be really, really difficult to overcome. No, quick question. When is the last time that the New England Patriots, without trading up, got into the, the first, the, the top half of the draft? Because I'm looking through the records. 2002 might have been the last year. Uh, so going into what, the 2003 draft because they were 9-7 and seven that year. But if you look at it, you'd have to go back to 2000, I think, right. where the last time was they were drafting within the top half 
uh, of the draft, maybe maybe 2003, that draft as well. But, I mean, it's pretty remarkable to think how much success the New England Patriots and, 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 and Tom Brady and them have had. They can utilize this model you're talking about because they've been able to be so successful as opposed to the Browns that, I mean, one can't get right. And, and maybe quickly, I, I am curious to get your uh, idea of this. Analytics, we've talked about it before in the past. Something that sure. the Browns have, have basically decided to do with their version of Moneyball with Paul Podesta and, and Saki Brown, uh, who are in charge of that. And it seems like in free agency so far, they let a lot of guys end up leaving. Uh, there were some rumors that, you know, that the guys were hesitant negotiating deals with agents. They didn't know the market for some of these players. That's why a lot of them ended up leaving. Um, and, and to me, it, it, it was almost as if Cleveland was a bit shell-shocked. Uh, when the new league year began, like they weren't prepared. And, and maybe that's what we're going to expect to see because these guys don't understand football and how different it is in applying some of these analytics from the baseball world to football. I mean, that's just my outside opinion. Now, they did, this, they did yeah. sign DeMario Davis, a linebacker, and that would be a good addition for them. But it still doesn't fill some of the voids they have. Obviously, they have a needed quarterback with the release of Johnny Manziel, as well as their offensive line with yeah. Schwartz being gone, Alex Mack being gone. You know, Joe yeah. Thomas is probably towards the end of his career. I mean, there's a lot of moving parts. Cam Irving, their first-round pick from last year, he didn't have a great rookie season. Can they believe in him moving forward? There's just a, a lot of decisions that they need to make. they got to find an afford wide receiver. Is Dwayne Bow, who was paid $9 million last year, is he yeah. still going to be on their roster? Um, and maybe they're still trying to work out a trade for him. Uh, I just yeah. don't know if anyone's going to pay him considering he only caught six or seven balls. But do you feel like – I mean, I, I guess what's your overall take on what the Browns have done so far in free agency? The best way I'll put it is uh, a couple of buddies of mine, uh, Jim Miller, my old teammate, quarterback from the Bears, quarterback with us for a time with the Patriots, uh, him and Pat Kerwin do their great show on XM. And, and Pat had actually made the point, and it's kind of, you know, he's a former general manager in the NFL, and he he made it, it, it kind of as cut and dried as I've heard it said. You, you don't take a four and whatever they were, were they four and 12 last year or two and 14 or whatever the Browns were, not good, right? You don't take a team that, yeah. that has performed at that level, remove four of their better players, and get better. I mean, that's just a really, really, really simple way to put it. You don't take a team that's already struggling and remove four of their better players and somehow magically improve. Analytics, I don't care what it says in your spreadsheet. That, it just doesn't work that way. But one of the di- more difficult things you have uh, with, with a roster and a team that's not winning well is retaining your, your good players because you've been on bad teams. I've been on bad teams. Just because you're on a team that's not winning doesn't mean, you know, of the 53, there might be 15 really great pros in that room. And you can still lose yeah. a ton of games with a team that's only got 15 great pros. But we know Alex back can play. We know that Schwartz was an up-and-coming player. You just go watch the tape. This isn't a – it's not a 4-12 and 12 player. You know what I mean? He can be yeah. a, a, a nice player. You you aren't – the player you are isn't necessarily attached to the record of the entire 53-man group. So when you take away good players, I just – again, I'll give the, the D Podesta or whatever his name is a little bit of grace because I want to see the final plan. But – I'll give them this. They haven't overpaid for anything, so that's a check mark in their favor. But there's been flight. There's been people out the door that I think they needed to retain if they needed some sort of foundation upon which to build. Another name I would I would bring up is uh, is uh, is it Justin Gilbert? Is he the the cornerback from Oklahoma State from a few years yeah. ago? Is that the right name? Yeah. He's another one yep. of those really highly touted first round picks. I mean, Manziel's obviously the one that gets the the headlines because he's the quarterback and his, his off the field stuff and all that to go in and out the door. But Gilbert has 
was, you know, I remember the, I remember the gushing over him at the combine a few years ago, a couple of years ago, whatever it was. And there was a lot of sort of, you know, fawning over him as well. And he's been more of a complimentary player, not bust or anything like that, but he, but he hasn't performed at that level. It's, it, it sort of uses it back to that, a Jacksonville Jaguars analogy. If, if you get a guy that is good, but, but isn't, performing at that sort of top level it really sets the organization back and then when you have the guys that do perform at that level like your alex max and then you don't retain them wow how do you how do you how do you beat the curve in that kind of environment so i guess the test for those guys will be where they stand two three years from now but you know obviously if you're an embattled browns fan <laughs> it's going to be tough to, to sort of to, to, to sort of power through this thing because I don't know. I mean, almost in, I, in my view, we'll see what that roster looks like on opening day. But, you know, are you, you Josh Gordon's your new favorite player, a guy that's got more question marks really than anyone in the NFL, certainly talent there. But, but who, who else are you – whose jersey are you buying? You know, who, uh, who are you sort of putting all your chips behind that they're going to help you win a game or two or three to, to push yourself up the ladder? So, I don't know. That's, that's a tough situation, man. And it seems like they're cleaning house and don't have a lot of, a lot of answers behind them. So – we will see. Well, I, yeah, I'm gonna, I wanted to hit you with this just on the way out the door. You don't have to answer it. I think it's just more sort of table setting for next time we hop back on this show. Sort of in that second wave, which is what we'll sort of look forward to from here on out. I think that's really sort of the wheelhouse for where you really get stuff done in the NFL. Guys that are still very good players, but weren't top of market. The guy that can play at an $8 million level, but only get paid four. And a four million dollar play in the NFL is a damn good football player. It's not like these guys yeah. are, you know, they're just not market busting. So I think this is when you start to see players like that. You mentioned Chris Long; his deal was reported at one for three. I would almost call him sort of borderline second wave. You know, he wasn't in that first rush of several days or a week or whatever. We are into free agency now. He's kind of on that cusp of I would almost call it like the first wave of or the first first sort of uh, thing out the door of second wave almost. Some of those guys that start to fly off the board, maybe a Nick Farley, Fairley, whatever his name is from out that, that's out there. It's a productive player that's not market busting now. There's going to be some names in those cracks that we'll start to hear about now that we'll look in October and November like, wow, that dude's producing, and he's at a modest number. And you know what? He's not playing that much differently than that guy that we all talked about on day one of free agency. So I think that's where the games will be won. But I'll look forward to hopping back on with you soon, uh, although it will not be next week. I'll tell that to fans out there of, of the FBF podcast. I'll be on a cruise ship, and you cannot pod from a cruise ship. No, connection's not good enough, unfortunately. <laughs> so, All right, Brady, have a great week, buddy. Uh, I'll talk to you Always soon. Always fun, Matt. Sounds good. Later, man. And one Brady leaves and another returns. So uh, Brady Quinn's got a bolt. Now we're going to do a little unusual format here where I'm going to Get Brady Papinga, other FBF rider here now on the line with some of the same kind of issues that we bounced off Brady Quinn, sort of talking about this first wave of free agency, some of the stuff that was a little bit of a head scratcher. Again, sort of good grace to the guy that got the deal. But uh, knowing the way the NFL works now, three years from now, five years from now, is it going to be difficult for the player to live up to it? Did he bust the market a little bit and affect other players' sort of negotiation out there? All those sorts of things. So, Brady Papenga, was there a guy uh, that you were like, wow, that's a, an amazing deal. Will he be able to live through the thing? Uh, well, the guy that uh... – Sort of the mystery to me was the Denver Broncos matching for C.J. Anderson. It's not that the financial commitment 
is so great that it's going to obviously cap strap them or anything like that. But I do believe that it was unnecessary and it was a desperate move because you look historically, and I think Alfred Morris is probably the best latest example, finding a running back, especially in that zone blocking scheme late in the draft or even as an undrafted free agent like Alfred Morris, you know what? Those guys could come in and be pretty darn explosive and be just as productive as guys like C.J. Anderson. You're not paying him anything. And, you know, uh, John Elway saw his firsthand back in his latter part of his career with Mike Shanahan, which is essentially the same offense as Gary Kuziak uh, implements. And he saw that with a guy by the name of Mike Anderson, who was a – I don't remember if he was a late guy. I think he was a six-round pick for the Denver Broncos, but also, you know, he's out of Utah, a guy that had been in the Army for a number of years, an older rookie, you know, Terrell Davis is struggling with his health issues, steps in and rushes for 1,500 yards in that zone-blocking scheme, and, and it literally looked like you could just throw anybody in there that had patience and ability to have a one-cut, uh, you know, to get up in the in the line when they see a gap in the defense, and somebody who ran hard, which finding guys with those kind of attributes – is uh, isn't very hard, and so I, I think that to me was the biggest reach. Not just not the financial reach. It's just sort of this idea of thinking that they needed C.J. Anderson when, in fact, they didn't. Looking at history and just the reality behind that zone blocking scheme, to where you can find a good running back, a guy that can bring you that productivity and that kind of scheme, either late in the draft or you can find a guy undrafted. And oh, by the way, you can bring in two guys and still not even hit that halfway mark of the buy. I think it's over, over $4 million a year that they're going to be paying C.J. Anderson. So I thought that was a reach just out of principle of, uh, of bringing in a guy really when you didn't have to. Well, it's an interesting sort of topic uh, from a free agent standpoint. You and I have both been there. Uh, I, 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 got, uh, I did my deal as a restricted free agent once, and then, I, and then the next time around I did it as an unrestricted free agent. So CJ was going through this deal as a restricted where he got the low tender, right? And the low tender, we're yeah. not going to do sort of accounting on here, but I believe it was in the, in the mid-millions, low millions, something like that, million and a half, something around that neighborhood. But the thing that was odd to me is, I mean, that's such a, a penance for, for a really good running back. Now, I'm not saying great. We're not talking Adrian Peterson stuff here, but I thought CJ Anderson was maybe a top 10 back sort of towards the end of it, but not used that much. So he's kind of a lower volume guy because they do the two back thing with Hillman. And you point to sort of some of the scheme boost that you get. Uh, if you get the right guy to do it, maybe you don't have to pay as much for him. But what I thought was curious, just from sort of a management standpoint is they kind of locked themselves in to happen to pay CJ Anderson, that, that number to have to match what, what Miami had put out there because they low tendered him. I think at the second round tender or whatever the next, next bump up, it was just a few million, which is still South of the, the five-ish million a year he's now going to make now. So it's it was a curious decision. And, and to be honest, I wonder if it was the right decision for them at a time where they thought they were about to pay Brock Osweiler a big number. And then all of a sudden it became the wrong decision for them when, well, we don't have a quarterback. Maybe it would be better to have a running back that we know well and that can be productive for us. Uh, the thing that's, that's always been such a head-scratcher for me, and, and I don't expect that you necessarily agree with his opinion, but – I've always thought that a good back, uh, and I, I could point to uh, the, the the run in the, I believe, early fourth quarter, late third quarter, the second half of the Super Bowl, where C.J. Anderson made some people miss on the second level, did some pretty next-level things in my mind. Uh, fourth quarter run against the Patriots in the AFC Championship game, where it's like, wow, 90% of the backs 
don't make that cut. Don't make that guy miss. Don't get the extra 12 yards on the end of the run. Now, I'm of the mind that I understand that they have short shelf lives. You know, running backs are no longer running 10 years and getting four or 500 carries a year. That's just kind of what I think helps push the number down. But the curiosity to me is when you have a position that even the elite guys, I mean, like Adrian Peterson is the top, top. And we're not talking about C.J. Anderson at that kind of money, but Adrian Peterson makes a, a fraction of what Ndamukong Sue is going to make, right? You know, a defensive tackle yeah. is considered, you know, or, or a sack guy, you know, Olivier Vernon is going to make $17, 18000000 million a year, whatever it is. Uh, we kind of like are, you know, wringing our hands over why not to pay it back six, <laughs> you know, just like a third of that number. So I yeah. get it, but I also, I also think, you know, I, a million or two here for a guy that, you know, the difference between a, an average back and a good back to me, the gap between those two is, is kind of the same in other positions. If a good pass rusher and a great, you get a lot more. So I guess in my yeah. view, if you had a guy and you like the guy, yeah, I don't have as big a problem with it. And I'm actually going to introduce another guy into the conversation that I think kind of is a little like uh, C.J. Anderson. It's Lamar Miller, who left Miami that cre- uh, created the opportunity here for Miami to, to, to make that offer that Denver eventually matched. Lamar Miller goes out to Houston now, and he's signed as, into, as a, an offseason contract. And, again, I don't have the numbers exactly in front of me, but I want to say he's in the six-ish per year neighborhood. Uh, kind of a similar situation, though, to Anderson out there in Denver, where if you're a Miami Dolphins fan, we, we read this and hear this from the AFC East all the time. It's just like, get the guy the ball. They've had issues with the offensive yeah. line. They haven't had a consistent running game. In the games where that dude would get 20 touches, they were really good. So, I don't know. I just always think that price is, is sometimes driven by your ability to use the guy. Maybe you don't want to pay C.J. Anderson that much because, you know, at the end of the day, I'll never give the guy the ball more than 15 times a game because I'm going to give it to him and the other 12 or, or whatever it happens to be. Sure. Well, I would say that Lamar Miller is at a whole other level than C.J. Anderson. Lamar Miller is a home run waiting to happen every time he touches the ball, whereas C.J. Anderson, he's a guy that's, you know, he can go out there and get you tough yards, like you said, and do those kinds of things, but he's not a home run waiting to happen. And even Lamar Miller, I mean, his efficiency in terms of being able to make a lot of very limited carries in both the run and pass game is what I thought last year made him one of those guys that if you're Miami, you're not going to be stupid. You're not going to pay him dumb money, but you're going to do everything in your power to keep him, which means you give him a contract early in the process. I'm going to tell you what, overall, the biggest loser in this whole free agency year up until this point, it has been John Elway. And it's not because he couldn't sign guys like Malik Jackson and Brock Osweiler here at the 12th hour or 11th hour right. or whatever, it's because he didn't have the foresight back in the day when these guys were emerging to throw a big carrot in front of them, a big chunk of signing bonus or guaranteed money so that they would at very least say, hey, you know what, it's irresponsible for me to pass up this money. I'm not going to test out the free agent waters. And boom, they got those guys locked up. He waited to the very last minute to try to negotiate with these guys. And as you know there, Matt, the risk from a player's perspective of taking on a whole other year so that you can hit free agency. You're going to hit free agency unless they blow you away with the deal because there's there's nothing to lose at that point. You might as well just sit around. And so to me, that's been the most, I would say, mysterious thing that's gone on during uh, this free agency. And also it's been the biggest setback in terms of a, an executive and John Elway that's been masterful up until this point that really has messed things up for that Broncos organization because he didn't have the foresight to keep these impactful players Whereas you compare that with the Patriots, you compare that to the, you know, the Steelers, the 
the Packers. Uh, those guys are quick to immediately, when they see a guy that they feel like is on the upswing, they're going to immediately start to negotiate with them, knowing that very fact that, hey, we're going to get them at a better price now than we will into the future, so let's get this done. And I, I believe the recent example with that with the Patriots, that Lewis kid, that running back who ended up tearing his ACL. Right, yeah, Lewis, yeah. The Patriots yeah. immediately, yeah, like, we got to sign this guy now to get him at the best rate possible. We're not going to wait around on him. And uh, that's one thing that uh, John Owen didn't do with his guys. And right now, you know, it's it's trickled down to the point to where they've had an exodus, and then his guy is going elsewhere like Brock Osweiler. And in a lot of respects, is being overpaid. But that's just the nature of free agency, especially when the cap jumps like it did this year. Yeah, you, I'm glad you, you touched on that at the end. I think that's probably one of the factors. And, again, I left the league in 2008, so 2009 was my first year out. You were out of the league a few years after that. And I wonder if – I don't, again, have it in front of me, but just on sort of a percentage basis, the way this cap keeps leaping. Like, it used to be – I'd have to go back and look again at the numbers, but, you know, when we're talking 2006, 7, and 8, the cap would go up, you know, but it might go up $5 million. You know, it wasn't going up 12, yeah. you know. So some of these leaps, if you are, say, that guy, you know, that you're sort of referencing, that guy who three years into a five-year deal – uh, is is presented with that. It, it's really hard to predict, you know, when you're negotiating on today's market, when you kind of sort of know that next year's is going to jump. I, I would look at Olivier Vernon as an example. There's all those guys, uh, you know, uh, Chandler Jones is a good example of the, 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 the trade that just sent him to Arizona, that if Chandler yeah. Jones, you know, he just was about to play for his fifth-year option for the Patriots, if he'd have been given numbers after his third season, a season that, you know, he's had double-digit sacks twice now, the numbers that he would have been negotiating in 2014 and done a five-year deal weren't going to be where Vernon's are. I mean, for, for 10 and a half or 11 and a half sacks at that time, you're probably talking about 12 million bucks. So, I mean, again, I, again, I don't play the position. Sam linebacker was, is of the 11 starting defensive position, usually the lowest paid one, even for starters. So sometimes those numbers don't change much. So maybe you'd feel a little more safe in getting the cash now. And, and like you said, you know, a team having some foresight and saying we're willing to pay more than we have to right now to make sure we don't have to pay way more than we want to later. Uh, but if you play cornerback or I, I, I think the other big – okay, I'll put it this way. The three big market inefficiency positions, in my view, have always been quarterback, which make astronomical money, and they're the most important p- player no matter what. But I also look at a quarterback with a, carrying a $23 million cap figure, 30 in Drew Brees' case, you know, in case that thing gets redone. Uh, those teams don't win. They don't just, you know, because if it, yep. the number That's gets right. too high, you're cutting out three or four good veteran players and you make it harder on yourself to win. So it's not belittling the value of that position. It's just I think some realities when the number gets too crazy. I think that also happens at cornerback. Cornerback is the same thing. You can only cover one dude. You know, once you <laughs> shut a guy down at 12 million, you don't do more to him when you're paid 18. <laughs> you still just shut it. You just still yeah. shut the same guy down, you know. And I think defensive end is kind of that way, too, especially when you're talking about an exceptional year. You know, a guy goes out and has 15 sacks. That's great. But let's be honest, that's one play a game. So at some point, for all those millions, it's really hard to do more. You know, you can get more knockdowns and pass disruptions and things like that. And it's certainly more than just the sack stat. But I think it's one of those positions where I was looking at the inside linebackers this morning. Uh, Bobby Wagner, uh, Levante David. Uh, DeAndre Levy in Detroit. These are some of your top inside linebackers in the in the game right now, and they make half of what a pass rusher makes. You know, uh, 
even Luke Keekley, as good as he's been with relatively new money, makes nine or ten a year. And that's a good inside linebacker number. So I think there are some positions, if sort of back to your original point, if you're one of those guys being come too early, man, uh, if I'm an inside linebacker, I'm saying, well, the market ain't going to change that much two years from now. If I'm a running back, it ain't going to change much from now. I'm a pass rusher. I'm like, man, I'm just going to play this out because free agency tends to pay us really dumb, <laughs> which yeah. dumb money is good for me. So, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's kind of an interesting thing. Never had to deal with that personally myself. <laughs> so uh, I would have loved to sort of crawl into the mind of one of these guys that has to make the decision. So uh, there's a lot of cash out there for these guys. So uh, now looking back, was there sort of, you know, I had mentioned, uh, Jermaine Curse when with Brady Quinn earlier in the show uh, as a guy that I was like, wow, you know, that was value. That's a guy that went out, checked out the free agency market, didn't get the big money like Marvin Jones, didn't get the big money. Even Muhammad Sanu got a nice number. There was a few contracts that jumped off the board. He was next tier, but signed back for, you know, Bob, I think it was three years and 13 million. So around four ish per year to stay in Seattle. I thought that was a great fit. I think it was just two people that worked well together with one another, kind of a bigger player does well in the shot system that they have off play action fits there might not be worth as much at other places, but he might go out and produce in these three years in a way that uh, will make him a, a real value at whatever number he's playing at. Is there a guy that you've seen sort of fly off in this first wave or even just sort of the fringes of first wave and after this first week went down where you're like, you know what, both sides are going to be really happy with that deal as it goes to completion. Yeah, the guy that I thought landed on his feet nicely was Mario Williams. You know, he was with the Bills where they tried to play him as a stand-up outside backer. He was pouting. But, I mean, you could speak from experience there, Matt. I can also, having played both the defensive end where you're in a three-point stance and then you know, outside backer to 3-4 where you have to now stand up, it literally is two different worlds. It's Mars and it's Venus. You know, and I saw a guy first right. in Aaron Campman that, uh, you know, he went from a three-point stance to a stand-up his, uh, his eighth year, my sixth year at the Green, or fifth year at the Green Bay Packers, and he was like a fish out of water. And I understand with Mario Williams, that probably was the case with him to where it's like he's thinking – Man, I've had quite, especially the last three years, we had the 2012, 10 and a half sacks, 2013, 13 sacks, and then 2014, 14 and a half sacks. Coming from that three-point stance, just shooting off out of there like a, a sprinter, all of a sudden standing up thinking, what are we doing here? I'm a lot better with my hand in the ground, and all of a sudden you want me to learn a whole new skill? And so now he's going to go down to Miami. Vance Joseph, the former defensive back coach of the Cincinnati Bengals, was hired by Adam Gates as their defensive coordinator. We know what the Cincinnati Bengals and their history and what Vance Joseph's going to want to do. He's going to say, Mario, you put your hand in the dirt, look at the ball, and you're going to fly on field. If you feel it's a run, you're going to settle down. <laughs> you're going to rush the passer to stop the run. We're not going to drop you back unless it's you know his own blitz here and there, but it's not going to be like up in Buffalo where you're standing up. And uh, recent history has shown that Mario Williams is going to be pretty disruptive in that kind of situation. And then uh, then you're going to couple him with a Namakan Sue pushing the pocket, who, which, by the way, when he was put in the right situation last year, Namakan, he, he looked like his old self, meaning a one-gap, sort of the same mentality. You're just shooting up the field instead of playing that two-gap, read and react this system that they started the year off, which, which was not his cup of tea, and then you put him on the other side of a guy like Cameron Wake, that's quite the, the pass rushing posse for the Miami Dolphins there, and, and they get Mario Williams at a palpable rate of $17 million over two years, which 
you know, when you consider what, like you were talking about Olivier Vernon, I I believe that the Miami Dolphins in that position upgraded drastically. I don't look at Olivier Vernon as a guy that's a big disruptor of a defensive end. He he was a guy that, you know, he had some flash plays here and there. It was solid rushing the passer, but he wasn't a guy that would make you want to rethink your pass protection scheme like a guy like Mario Williams would. So I feel like that one to me was one that uh, that's not only going to be a good deal for the Dolphins, but it's going to be a good deal for Mario because now he's going to be able to do what he's done at a high level over three of the last four years, and that's put his hand in the dirt and just react and rush the passer, react late to the run. And that, to me, is his ideal position where I, I'd expect him to be very disruptive, especially with the guys that he's going to be playing with. The interesting part of that of the the deal with Mario Williams going down there, he's been a left side guy. Even once we get out of base defense, and it's you know he's no longer standing, as you mentioned in that three four, and he puts his hands down and sub. Uh, he you know he's played left side now. Cameron Wake has been a left side guy forever. He had the big injury yeah. last year. Both of these guys are now north of thirty years old. I would agree with you that that Vernon Vernon's a, just an interesting case. And again, I, I say this not to knock the guy. I liked him a lot. I think we, there was a time where we were pumping him up, where other people weren't talking about him in his four years. Where we're saying, hey, Cameron Cam Wake is a stud. We get that. But hey, this Vernon guy on the other side, he's a pretty good player too. You know, he's not going to go out and get 20 sacks. We understand that. But this is a guy that they have some symmetry now to the rush. So, but I think what, what really yeah. spiked what really spiked his value was about an eight-game stretch at the end of last season. You know, I think over the course of four years, he's 26-ish sacks, somewhere in that neighborhood, if I, if I recall correctly. I, again, I don't have it in front of me. But, he, you uh-huh. know, he really had a great eight games. And it wasn't even sack-related. I think he had a lot of knockdowns and a lot of pressures or – you know, that always depends upon who's who's doing the calculating there. But he had a disruptive second half of the season. He had sort of that ultimate great run before free agency, you know. So it's sure. it's an interesting thought that because Mario Williams did stay in the division and, in other words, going to a team that got a real hard long look at him, and because you're right, I, I think there was the uncertainty about position fit. Uh, you certainly don't want to do Mario Williams back on another 3-4 defense. The biggest criticism of here was in the year that Mario had, where I think in, in part for reasons you mentioned, and it's something he's actually talked about from the, from, from in press conferences and interviews, that he seemed he seemed not into it. He seemed miffed a little bit that he was asked to, you know, drop. You know, they just and oh I think yeah, he was very he open about that. He kept yeah, yeah he kept talking exactly. in the media about that, which shows yeah. you how annoyed he was. Exactly. Which, and again, one person will say, "Hey, you know, use your guys right." The other half will say, "Hey, it's a character issue. Just do whatever the coach says," kind of thing. But I, I think if the, in a review of his tape, and again, I haven't watched all the games, but I, people have pointed out some loafish kind of stuff where it looked, you know, he looked disengaged because things went downhill. He was a player who played some of his worst football we've seen in his career in the second half of this uh, season, or in the second half of this, yeah, this particular year. And I think that was why it was a bit of a head-scratcher that he was able to get the money quickly. But I agree with you that you love him at nine or at eight and a half million. You don't love him at 15, right? So I think the expectation of what you think you're going to have to get from him is, you know, you don't have to go back and get the Houston numbers or even his early Buffalo numbers. He doesn't have to be a 10-sack guy for eight million bucks. You know, for eight million bucks, he can use his length, push the edge, Maybe he ends up with a six eight sack guy. He's a consistent player. He's a he's a rep gobbler. You know he plays you know seventy or eighty percent of the snaps. 
all those things. And all of a sudden, I think you think a little differently of him. So it's a risk, I think, because of the down year he had. But uh, I do agree that the fit might be better, especially if Wake's not back immediately and you can plug him at left. If you feel like you got to go stick him at right and Wake's good, you know, you got your symmetry and you're not having to pay nearly as much as the Giants are paying for Vernon. So uh, I think that's one that'll kind of play out and we'll, we'll see where it goes. Um, sort of one parting shot here I wanted to kind of touch on before before we got you off the line. This is something we talked about with Brady Quinn. We led with it in, in his deal and now kind of go out the door with you. It's something that I think that we often overlook. You know, you see a bunch of names in the newspaper or on, online or whatever. You see the numbers. You see the new place he's going. I think the the place that loses him says, you know, it depends on the fan base, I guess. Sometimes up, up here we get a little uh, – a little heated with, uh, you know, as soon as you're gone, you're dead to me kind of thing. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And all, all, the, all, the, all the things that were wrong with you is like, you know, it's like a jilted lover kind of thing. It's like, ah, oh, my wife was a terrible cook and she's, you know, but she raised four great kids. And, you know, it's the kind of thing like you only see the bad stuff as they head out the door. And sure. Same thing on the way and the way in the door, you know, you're, you're going to want to say, hey, this is why this guy will be great for me. Uh, one, I'm curious just from your own sort of personal experience, when you did that new deal, you know, as a free agent, even if it was re-signing with the same team or if it was going somewhere else, just sort of some of the personal experience of something I think that gets forgotten a lot in the headlines. And, you know, hey, Player X signs for blankety-blank million dollars or even blankety-blank hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I think just the changing of lives is something that we often don't see. I know I talked about it with Brady earlier, but it was that was a life-changing moment for me, getting that one big – free agency thing and the final deal. Can you just talk about a little bit about that? You know, life change. You're going in, maybe you're putting on a new color. <laughs> you're wearing your cowboy stuff now. You've always had Packer Green on or or whatever it happens to be where, <laughs> hey, you got that deal. And, man, it might not have been a big news item, but it was a life changer for myself and my family. Yeah, well, that was uh, when I was re-signed with the Packers in an extension, you know. And what happened there is all of a sudden the scrutiny of the of your position on the team because of what you're getting paid just it elevates to a level that Doesn't it? Doesn't you're, it? you're yes. always wondering why are they yeah why are they questioning every little move they make about me oh this guy he he played special teams more than he usually did man and for the salary he's making that's a lot to make for a special teams player you know stuff like that you're like right you know and and, and it's not that you hear about it it's questions that you would field after a game or during the week as the media would talk to you so, I remember one of the B writers, Rob Demosky of the Green Bay Packers, asked me, "Now your your salary's at X, you know, and you seem to be playing a lot more specialty. That's a lot to pay a special teams player, isn't it?" I just remember thinking, like, I don't know. That's a lot to play a special teams player. I just know that's what I'm being paid, and it's worth it. Right. And however the coaches want to deploy my talents, that's up to them, pal. And so I always right. thought that was interesting, you know. And it was always every year you're. Uh, status on the team was in question. You know, does he is he? And it was the question of is this guy is he earning this salary that he's due to make, or is it he a guy that should be on the bubble? You know, which bothered a lot of my uh, community friends in Green Bay because they would write about it. And so that to me was the biggest change. Just the scrutiny level rose to a level to where it was a constant questioning of do I deserve that money? You know, and uh, that to me I thought was uh, fascinating because it never was a question. You know, my rookie deal, rookie deal was almost the opposite. Man, what a great deal! Man, they got they got quite the deal with Finga. You know, and all of a sudden you get the big money, and uh, everybody now questions whether or not you actually deserve it. So that was uh, my yeah. personal experience with the Packers. 
Well, do you remember, I, I, I asked, we'll sort of finish with this. This is something where I know fans fall in love with a player or they get used to a player being a part of their organization. And, you know, like an example here, Chandler Jones, you know, he's, he's been here for four years, entering his fifth, won a Super Bowl with the organization. You only know him as a Syracuse Orangeman, if you were a fan <laughs> of that particular university, and as a Patriots. Uh-huh. He just kind of looks normal, maybe even better than Chandler, like a Vince Wilfork, a guy that's been here for a decade, right? Like, you just know him yeah. in red, white, and blue. Uh, but then all of a sudden, you're gone, and you go a different place. And, you know, people just affiliate you with that place and that uniform. And I'm curious, just psychologically with yourself, you wore green and gold, other than your old BYU Cougar stuff, BYU Cougar stuff but you wore green and gold for quite a while. You were probably used to going to work each day and throwing on green sweatpants or you know, whatever. And that first yeah. time where you had to walk into another locker room and put on some blue stuff, you know, the silver star and all that. Like I, I personally had, you know, a very unsettling, weird first week with the Jets because I, I felt like a pickle. You know, I was wearing green sweats. <laughs> everything, you, everything you got is green, green. yeah. Yeah, I was all greened up, and it was like, I just feel weird, you know? I'm just weird, used to wearing grays and used to wearing blues, dark navy blue every day. And all of a sudden, it was it was just a little adjustment to thinking, well, Matt Chatham, number 58 for the Patriots, looks like this. And you'd see this guy all dressed in green, and it just, it just takes a while. I think, it, did, did you have any of those same feelings, or maybe not as much? Well, when I went to the, the Rams from the Packers, you know, it's, Rams, it, it was Packers, the right. same blue as – yeah, the same blue that I wore in college, you know. So I'm like, even our practice gear with the Rams looked very similar to the practice gear I wore in college. So when I was looking at it, I was like, wow, it's sort of a flashback. And it was somewhat of the same thing with <laughs> Capwood. It's almost like yeah. I was back in my college days. And so, fortunately, like, I get what you're saying, like, uh, with the colors. And you're just like, what the heck is this? Because that's how it was <laughs> with me when I went from high school to the college range. Because in high school, I was red. We're the Red Devils, uh, and then the college, we went blue. And so at first, it was, you know, you're so used to yourself in red, and blue is such a, you know, contrasting color to red. That's where you get that. But when I when I was in the pros, and I went from, you know, the, the Packers to the Rams and the Rams to the Cowboys, the Rams and Cowboys both have somewhat of that blue foundation right. to their color scheme. Right. So I almost felt like I was back in college again. It was nice. It's like, yeah, this, and, and it's, <laughs> it's my favorite color anyway. You know, so I didn't feel weird, but it was just, uh, it was different, obviously, than the, the regular green and gold that you'd become accustomed to. But there is somewhat of a, you know, you get that kind of, you got to take a second look at yourself when you're wearing some of those colors because you're used to just seeing those in your opponents. You know, as you've been with one right. team for, I was with the, for six years with the Green Bay Packers. I, I think you were with the Patriots, what, eight years or so? And, six years, uh, six just, years there. Oh, six years. Okay, yeah. So you, you you're used to seeing those colors, but they're those are the guys that you're going to look to beat. Those are your opponents, and all of a sudden, right. you're looking at yourself. You're like, I'm one of them, man. This is that's the surreal part, you know. And you're actually the uh, instead of the opponent, you're that's your team, you know. And so that to me was a little different. But the colors, because I had worn the similar colors in college, of the that navy blue, blue kind of you know color scheme. It was a uh, like going back in time when I went to the Rams. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah, I just, I guess my point in even bringing it up is just to let fans know that as, as kind of weird as it is to see a guy you used to cheer against now wearing your colors and sort of, I think there's an adjustment period, like getting used to him in that stuff. I think players have the same thing too. You're kind of like walking through this unfamiliar locker room. You're seeing the faces at lunch that you used to just see, you know, across from you. 
twice a year, once a year, yeah. maybe if you're if you moved in the division. But there's an adjustment period for everyone. It's weird to bring a family into a new city. It's bring, weird to bring your wife and have to have her kind of, uh, you know, if you're married or not, but, uh, you know, sort of assimilate yeah. herself into a group, a women's group. Like my wife was very involved in the charitable stuff here with the New England Patriots, wives or girlfriends. And then all of a sudden there's, she's trying to make friends with the Jets one. It's kind of hard for, I think sometimes it can be harder. There's an adjustment period for that too, to sort of make a new life. And I think we forget about that because a lot of times the NFL is just transactions in the newspaper, go play for this team, go play for that team. But with players, yeah, we kind of got to move around, <laughs> you move your life. Sometimes exactly. it's kids and life and there's other considerations. Well, uh, that's all we got for this week's show. We're really uh, fired up, Brady, to get back on the wire, man. It's uh, fun to do it again, and we will speak soon. Have a great week, bud. All right, you too, man. Thank you. See you. That's all we've got for this week's show. The FBF podcast is back and rolling. Uh, for you readers out there, the footballbyfootball.com website, a little piece of news. Uh, I can tell you a little bit. I've hinted at this on our social properties, but uh, we are on a little bit of a hiatus from writing. It's because we're blowing out the website. We're trying to do some new buildings, some growth and investment here to get this thing bigger and uh, add some writers, do some new features, do some other stuff. So on this little winter break that we're taking, we will continue to stay connected to you guys uh, through the FBF podcast, something that we'll be doing regularly, weekly, throughout this offseason. All that said, there will not be a show next week because I'm going to be on a cruise, podcasting from a cruise, a little worried about some signal issues. Thanks again for coming back with us. We will see you next time. That's your FBF podcast. Take care. As always, the FBF podcast can be found for streaming or download on footballbyfootball.com or blogtalkradio.com. You can download the FBF podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and on the TuneIn Radio app. For daily insightful stuff from guys like Brady and myself, make sure to check out the footballbyfootball.com Facebook page and give us a follow on Twitter at FBBYF. See you next time. Thanks for listening to the Football by Football podcast. Football insight by football players. Hi, Lucky. Hi, Dusty. Good night, Ned. Good night, Ned. Good night, Ned.